We are Hope Church Guildford. This is a recent recording from our Sunday morning gathering. We hope you can join us at the Royal Grammar School on Guildford High Street, Sundays at 10am. Enjoy the message. Morning, everyone. Well, we're going through the story of the Exodus, which is the second book in the Bible. And uh, we're following the people of Israel as they escape from Egypt and know God's blessings. So we're going to be covering today about six chapters. So I think we'll do that in about 35 minutes. You think? 30? Any improvements on 30? No. Oh, ye of little faith. We're going to enjoy looking at this next part. Now, um, chapter 18 is going to be covered by Stuart in a couple of weeks' time. So I'm kind of telling you the story from chapter 19 for a few. But i just got to kind of find out where we are in the Exodus story. And I've had a kind of notification from the Wilderness Times, which is the daily paper of the Exodus Israelites. A report from our journalist who is called Jeremiah Lamentations. And his report comes from an Israelite camp located near Mount Sinai. And the headline is, oh, why didn't we just die in Egypt? Uh, So it's about a snowflake generation. Snowflake generations are not new, right? They were there thousands of years ago. So here's the story from Jeremiah Lamentations. After being freed from slavery by the God of Abraham, witnessing ten terrible plagues against Pharaoh, and walking across the Red Sea on dry ground to escape from Egypt's enemy, uh, Egypt's army, Kemuel, son of Baram, the tribe of Benjamin, is demanding to be brought back to die in Egypt after stubbing his toe on a sharp rock. I curse the day I was born, said Kemuel, while rolling around on the ground and clutching his foot. Moses has deceived us and has brought us into this accursed land just for us to stub our toes. It would have been better if I died in Egypt as a slave. I would have been even better if my mother had never borne me. Sources say dozens of similar complaints have arisen from the people, including splinters in fingers, skinned knees and rumbly tummies due to missing their slave snacks. Critics of Moses say that while they were forced to work hard in mud pits 20 hours per day making bricks for Pharaoh, at least there weren't any sharp rocks on which to stub one's toes. Yet this was a mistake, they're saying. Let's go back, said one Israelite while applying ointment to his sunburn. At the time of this report, several people had planned to confront Moses, but learned he had left them to climb nearby Mount Sinai, presumably to get away from this lot. Now, that's the context. The people of Israel have seen brilliant things. God's delivered them. He's helped them, and they're still whinging and moaning. If you read the chapters before chapter 19, there's an awful lot of grumbling. There's no water, there's no food. We can't find our way. These people who have known the grace of God still grumble and moan. If I was God, I'd just give up on them, wouldn't you? 
a grumbling, moaning people. But we're going to find out that God is faithful to his own purposes and to his people. So we're going to look at chapter 19. And we're going to kind of look through beyond that to other chapters. And I'm going to read chapter 19 to you. And uh, we're going to look at the mountain. We're going to look at meeting with God and then what God spoke in his message. So I'm going to read from chapter 19 of Exodus. If you've got a Bible, be really good because I'm going to skip through one or two other chapters as well. But chapter 19, verse 1. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Make them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he will not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, may they go up to the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. And then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people, so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, 
The people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And then we have chapter 20, which is one of the famous chapters in the Bible because that's where the Lord gives to Moses the Ten Commandments. And if I can summarize the Ten Commandments for you, you shall have no other gods before me. Don't make them worship any idols or icons. Don't take my name in vain. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Honor your father and mother. And there's a promise with that, that if you do that, you live long in the land. It says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, don't tell lies about others. And it said, finally, don't covet or desire something or someone that doesn't belong to you, that belongs to someone else. And then there's other laws in chapter 21. There's community rules and safeguards. God talks about idols and altars. There's recompense for personal Injuries. It goes through protection of property and the, the punishment matches the crime. No more and no less. And that's the principle of jurisprudence, that actually the punishment should match the crime. There's consideration for men, for women, for children, for those people who are aliens, those people who are weak and poor. There's works of words about integrity and charity And then it talks about the Sabbath laws and it tries to bring a kind of a rhythm of life to the people of Israel. Every week, one day, you'll have a break. You'll have the Sabbath. Every seven years, you will do this. There's a rhythm to their life together. And then God speaks at the end of chapter 23 about sending an angel to prepare the way. And he promises that he will go ahead of them and they will go into uh, the promised land. And he will be with them. In fact, he'll go ahead of them. But it will still be a little by little work, right? He will drive them out bit by bit. But he will establish their borders. And he's saying, don't make any covenant with anyone else because I'm going to make a covenant with you. So in chapter 24, verse 3, I'm just going to read a few verses here. When Moses went and told people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Quite a lot to cover there. But I want to talk to you about the mountains that God meets us on. But the good news is this. God also meets us in the valleys. God is everywhere. 
but he loved meeting people on mountains. Uh, I'm not really a mountain climber. I'm not really a walker. I like sports. I play, I've played games through my life. When I've been involved with mountains, generally been because I've been falling down them skiing. So I used to go skiing every year from my mid-30s through to my mid-60s. And uh, I've broken my shoulder, broken my shoulder in, in Austria. I've broken my wrist in Switzerland. And I've smashed up my other shoulder in Italy. So I have pieces of me dotted all around the continent and so on. So I'm okay getting up on the lifts, coming down. I'm okay. I could go on off piste and so on. But now and again, crash. Bang, wallop. Mountains are awesome things. So when I've seen mountains, I've generally seen them being on holiday or been skiing. And sometimes you'd be up there and they are just majestic. They seem so stable, but sometimes things can change, even in mountains. And in some way, God uses mountains. Even though he can meet us in the valley, he uses mountains right the way through, through Scripture. Mount Moriah is where Abraham takes Isaac and he's told to sacrifice his son. It's a real test of faith. And it's also an example of God's provision uh, of a sacrifice. There's also Mount Tabor, where there's Mount that Jesus is transfigured. He goes up with three of his disciples, uh, and they, he's transfigured, and Moses and Elijah appear with him. There's Mount Carmel, again in the Old Testament, where Elijah goes up, and he takes on the prophets of Baal. And actually, God answers Elijah's prayer, and the prophets of Baal are defeated. There's also the Mount of Olives where Jesus went to pray. And he prayed before he was crucified. But the most famous maybe in the Bible is Mount Sinai. It's in the Sinai Peninsula, not far from Sharm el-Sheikh where people go for holidays. And here the Lord gives them the Ten Commandments. If we look through these chapters, you'll find that Moses climbs up Sinai about seven times. Right, up and down about seven times in response to God's demands and God's requests. And also, we've just read, a covenant is established, which we would know as the Mosaic Covenant. And God shows here that he's infinitely holy. He's set apart. Don't come too near to God. Don't take things for granted. It's like the lion, the witch in the, the wardrobe where they talk about Aslan. Is he safe? Says, is he tame? No, he's not tame. God is glorious, but he's not tame. He's not safe. He's majestic. He's mighty. Everyone will need to give an account to this God. Everyone will bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. And God comes and shows himself in this mountain. And his first words from Sinai are this. In the first few verses of chapter 19, he tells the people, understand this. Salvation, your salvation has been my work, not your work. I delivered you. You didn't deliver yourself. You were helpless. You were a slave people. But I have shown mercy and grace to you. And I have delivered you. I have restored your relationship with me. And I'm bringing you into a privileged relationship with me that requires your obedience. But I want you to be a special nation, a special people, 
And I want you to be so distinctive that people notice and give glory to God. That's what God is doing and saying here on this mountain. And then when we meet with God, you see, Moses were familiar meeting with important people. Moses was raised and as, a, as an Egyptian prince. He would have been in palace when all sorts of important meetings took place. He's also used to kind of meeting with uh, dignitaries, meeting with people who are famous. All of these meetings he's gone through. He's even confronted Pharaoh when he's gone and said, let my people go, that's what God says to you. But actually, it was Moses' meetings with God that changed his life. I don't care who you've met, but it's not until you meet God that you can have a life-changing experience. When you meet God, he changes the inside. When you meet famous people, you can be impressed, but they do very little to change your heart, whereas God meets you in his mercy and his grace, and he changes you. I, I walk with God. I'm not perfect in that walk with God. I'm a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, but I know in my life there's been certain times when I feel I've met with God powerfully. When I was a little boy and I, I believed that I was a sinner, I didn't feel condemned, but I knew I did things wrong and I knew Jesus was a savior and I put my trust in him. When I was in my 20s and I, I felt my Christian life was fairly kind of dry and familiar, I saw other people getting excited about God and the Holy Spirit and I talked to them and I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, hallelujah. I met with God. He changed me on the inside. I've been to meetings, thousands of meetings. Most of them done me good. Some of them done me harm. But a few of them have been brilliant. Where I felt I've really met with God. God has spoken to me. I went to some meetings and I was the leader of the church where the meeting was. And the guy said, come out if you feel you've got hard layers on your heart. And I went out to the front. And this guy was from uh, the vineyard in, in America, John Wimber's team. And he said, God's going to take layers off your heart. And I went to the front. And even though I was the leader of the church, I knew God had called me. I wasn't bothered about what other people felt. Even if I was the leader, I needed something changing in my heart. And I went to the front. And he said, just put your hand out. And I didn't know whether there were other people there. I wasn't bothered whether anyone else was there. Because I felt God had called me and was speaking to me. Just that little phrase, God wants to take layers off your heart, was enough for, to know that God was speaking to me. And I went out and he said, just put your hands out. And he said, just receive the Holy Spirit and let God just heal you and restore you. And do you know what started happening? My arms started to shake. Now listen, I'm not really so spiritual that I shake and fall easy. I'm a northerner. Okay, listen. I'm, you know, I'm not impressed with all this sort of stuff that goes on. But you know, God started to move me and touch me. And my arms started to shake. And do you know, I said, I remember saying to God, this is really silly. And I felt God say to me, no, it's really me. And I let God have his way and he, he softened my heart in lots of other things. Uh, I preached uh, uh, last year about going to Korea and how I met with God on a mountain in Korea. And God spoke to me and told me to pray big prayers. And to pray the prayer of Jabez, oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my borders. 
Keep your hand on me. Keep me from harm so I won't be hurt. And I know I've had times when I've met with God. Meeting God, meeting with God is a serious business. But it's even more amazing, not just that I meet him, but he's willing to come down and meet with us. Isn't that the amazing thing? The amazing thing is not that Moses would go up seven times. The amazing thing that God would even come down once in his holiness and his glory, especially to these grumbling people. Doesn't this show you how great God is? How patient he is? How committed he is to his own purposes? How sometimes we know we fail and we fall, and yet God still moves towards us. What a great God we have. Moses meets God, has an encouraging message from God, and he passes it on, and the people say, we will obey. Sounds good. We'll see whether they do that or not. And then at God's request, Moses brings the people to meet God. They'd witnessed amazing things. Now they're to meet with God. That's the awesome thing. What a serious business it is. It required three days of cleansing and preparation. Husbands and wives were told, abstain from sexual relations. It's not because they're impure, but actually it was saying, you better give God your first and your best attention. We see how awesome God is. We put away the flesh in order to worship the eternal one. We put away our own desires and our lusts and whatever it is. We cleanse ourselves and we are ready to meet with God. Meeting God is an awesome thing. They arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai. There's fire and smoke, quaking ground, trumpet sound, getting louder and louder, thunder and lightning. The people are so fearful, they say this, Moses, you can meet God. We'll stay around here. Moses, and that's part of God's plan because he wants to set out Moses as a clear leader who hears God. The people grumble not just against God but against Moses too. So he's honoring Moses' leadership. And God speaks only to Moses so people can trust his leadership. God warns Moses. He says, listen, Sinai is set apart as holy. No one's to be casual around my presence. It's not take it or leave it. It's not, well, God's around somewhere. It doesn't matter. When God is around, you take notice. And that's what happens here. Set Sinai apart as holy. No one is allowed to force their way through to see me. There are limits set by God. You approach God on his terms and his terms alone. Not on your own terms. He's holy, he's holy, he's holy. What can we learn about that? How amazingly holy God is that we should ever call him Father, that we should ever approach him through Jesus is an incredible thing. Don't take it for granted. Enjoy the presence of God, but value the presence of God. Seek the presence of God. God's presence and holiness is an awesome, awesome matter. There is a fear of God 
that we need to have. It doesn't mean that we're afraid of him as if he's precious and small-minded and he's going to spoil our lives and hurt us and find fault. But fear God out of respect for who he is and out of a great regard. The New Testament says he is a consuming fire. The New Testament says God is not mocked. God is not fooled. Whatever you sow, you will reap. He's an awesome God. And we must remember this as we live our lives beyond the cross in the goodness of all that Jesus has done. It takes all the power of the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us to be able to approach God's presence. That's what Jesus has done. So when we take the cup and the wine, we're not doing it this morning, but when we take the cup and the wine, we are celebrating a new covenant, a new way to approach God. God is actually approachable, but on his terms, and his terms you approach me through Jesus Christ and no other way. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to God. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that is truth. It can seem so narrow, but truth is narrow. One plus one is two. It's not anything else. Truth is narrow, right? There's one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. So we see here, right, before all that Jesus has done, how amazing it was to even get near to God or approach God. So we need to be respectful. If we have a casual view of God, we'll have a, a casual walk with God. If we have a shallow view of him, then we'll have a shallow walk with him. And now I want to get to what God said to Moses, the message. I find this really amazing. Our title is Treasured Possession. That's been the title of the series right the way through. And this is where he says it to the people. You see, I think if I was God, I'd come down and give them a good telling off. And you grumbling, miserable people, right? How should I ever? And later on, God does get fed up with them because they keep disobeying. And he says to Moses, listen, I'll just take you on. And Moses intercedes for these moaning people. He says, no, Lord, Lord, take them. They're your, your people, Right? You don't have a bad reputation of your people. Take them, re restore them. That's what he says. But the amazing thing here, when God comes and speaks these words of affirmation, he says this, you will be my treasured possession. These are words of value. These are words of affection. And that's what I believe is God's heart. God's heart for you and me is a, God, a heart of love, of affection, of valuation. You are worth the death of his most precious son. That's the value he's put on your life. Sometimes we think we're not worth anything. Nobody appreciates us. No, God has put a worth on you. And the worth that God has put on you is it you cost the death of his son, his perfect son, that you might know him. That's how much you are valued. And God comes with amazing words of affirmation. God's view of these ex-slaves, these moaning people, is really surprising in his tenderness and his love. 
See, sometimes, even in our kind of Christianity, we can become very judgmental towards other people. There are things that they do wrong. We can be like the Pharisees. We've caught the woman in adultery. Let's stone them. Let's stone them. And Jesus actually says, well, who's without sin? You cast the stone first and they all go away. And the value is placed even on the life of someone who deserves punishment. She receives the grace of God, the forgiveness. And Jesus says, go your way, but don't sin in the same way you have been doing. It's amazing the value that God has placed on you and me. And we see it here with these people. They've been slaves. Now he's calling them a treasured possession. You grumble, God says, I still love you. You stumble, you fail, God says, I still love you. You are my treasured possession. What a great message. Isn't it a good message for you? I, I, I guess no one would stand up if I asked who's never failed or fallen, who's ever stumbled, because we all do. We all do, but God still loves us. And just as much as he calls these people his treasured possession, we are called the chosen people, a holy nation. And God's words and God's warnings and even these Ten Commandments all come from love and affection. I don't know what your view is. Sometimes you look at these commandments and think, oh, it's God's getting bolshy. God's trying to control things. No, these come out of a heart of love, not condemnation. God is turning this once enslaved rabble into a nation and he needs to shape them up. They're going to be a community. There needs to be some understanding of what is right and what is wrong, how they should live together. They're going to be a holy nation. They've been birthed out of the blood of the Passover lamb. They've been rescued through the baptism, through the Red Sea. And they've been carried by God, he says, on eagles' wings. And they're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Not just for their sake, but for the sake and the blessing of other nations. So when God brings these commandments, it's not him getting bolshy. It's not saying, how can I make your life miserable? Sometimes we look at commands and rules and we think, oh, just someone trying to boss me around. No, they are good for us. God loves and values these people. He cares for them. The commandments were never a means of earning favor with God because these people have already been rescued. He's now saying, walk in this way because you are a distinctive, redeemed people. So he's not giving these laws that they might be saved through them. They're already saved. He's saying, this is how to live. This is how to honor me. And Moses' attitude to these commands is so positive. If you listen to someone talking to you for several days, giving you rules and commands, you'd come off the mountain depressed. But actually, Moses doesn't. He says in Deuteronomy 4, And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws? He's delighted in these laws. The longest chapter in the Bible is what chapter? Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter. It is all King David 
saying, I love your law. Your word is terrific. I love your decrees. You know, that's probably not in our heart really, is it? We see laws as being difficult and restrictive and some of them can be. Not all laws are God's laws. Not all laws are good and proper. But here, God in his goodness is changing these people. He even says this, read them, teach them to your children, chat about them, wear them on your hand and your heads. Hang on, are you getting a bit over the top with these laws? Let me just tell you, see, I've had my granddaughter stay with me overnight, Pam and I. Uh, they're with us here this morning. If I'd have said to them yesterday, listen, you're coming to us, we'll, we're going to spend the afternoon looking at some laws. And I'm going to teach you these laws. And then you're going to... I mean, imagine if I said to them, let's go through the highway code. <laughs> Even as we go back this afternoon, I could say to them, we're going to spend the afternoon just going through the highway code. Because they're our delight, aren't they? No, not at all. You, isn't it amazing, Moses' reaction, the people of God's reaction? They saw these as good. A good God gives good laws. He gives good guidelines. And they're so delighted with it. They kind of say, enjoy it. Read this every day. How many of you have read the Highway Code recently? <laughs> One, two. Good. You're probably taking a test or retest or something like that. Okay. Most of us, oh, don't want to read them. But I tell you, your life depends on these. Isn't that true? Your life depends on these. Your life depends on people obeying these. Taking them seriously. They're good. And this is why these people delight in the law of God. According to Moses being living, given God's laws, it was not a punishment. It was a privilege. God is here being, being, being very clear about Israel and how they're to be distinctive. It's not left open to the loudest or the richest person or the bully to make the rules. Aren't you pleased about that? God has spoken. It's not left to other people to decide. God has spoken. And they're to love and honor God above everything else and they're to respect and love one another. That's exactly how Jesus summarized the greatest commandment. When he was asked, what's the great commandment? He said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. See, God wasn't bringing Israel to the law. He was bringing them to himself as a special people, a distinctive people who would honor him and have respect for one another and be able to live in community together. He wasn't saying salvation comes by obeying the law. The Israelites were already saved. The law was given for their safety and for their blessing. God's commandments are a protection. They're a protection against his righteous standards, his holiness, his wrath, his justice, his judgment. And they're also a protection against one another, abusing people. Abusing one another, hitting one another, being unfaithful to your wife. These things, there's an accountability that God brings. 
they're going to be a distinctive people. And wherever there is a community or a nation or a society, there will be commandments. There will be statutes. There will be laws. We may not agree with them all, but they're there. Put in place for that society to function well together. You function okay on the roads primarily because of the highway code. A regard for this. Every nation needs some guidelines, some code within we live and we honour. But what does the New Testament teach about the law? Because I'm saying how great it was. But actually the New Testament says it was good. It was God-given. If you want to read through Romans or Galatians or Hebrews, it'll talk a lot as Paul's talking and teaching there about the law. It says the law is God-given. It's good, but it also says this. The law is limited. You see, the law can never produce a holy lifestyle in you because you're weak. You're weak. You will never keep the law. See, none of us have ever perfectly kept the highway code. Now, you must think I have a terrible view of you all, but I can guess, right? I haven't seen you driving, but... Even as pedestrians, there's guidelines in there. As cyclists, there's guidelines in there. How we should behave. But you see, do you know, this here doesn't produce a good driver. My response to it produces a good driver. A careful driver. Someone who's considerate for others. So the law cannot produce a holy lifestyle in us because the New Testament says we fall, we fail. The other thing about the law is it's always right, but it can't help us. It never helps us to do what is right. It tells us what's wrong, but never helps us to do what is right. And do you know also about the law? It tends to move towards condemnation. So we feel guilty rather than commendation. Now, I'm not against the police. I've been stopped three times when I've been driving. And last one was a long, long time ago. Once I was going to a prayer meeting and the guy stopped me and said, I think you were speeding. I said, I didn't think it was. You know, you took that roundabout quite quickly. And I said, I didn't think it was, but you obviously... You noticed. He said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to a prayer meeting. (laughs) Do you want to be an example of grace? He just told me off and that was it. I don't think I was really speedy. But anyway, do you know, that's happened to me. But I've never, ever had this. And I'd be interested to see if anyone hears it. Has anyone ever had the police stop them and say, your driving is just terrific? The way you went around that roundabout, the way you went around that roundabout, it was just absolutely wonderful. The way you cared for other people. You see, the law tends to condemnation rather than commendation. And that's what the law is like. It can be neutral in that way. Also about the law, it provokes sin. It finds something in us where we want to rebel. Have you ever walked on the grass? See, the grass out there is lovely. Right, we'll respect that grass until someone puts a sign on it saying, keep off the grass. And I tell you, 
we'll be running across it, skipping across it. Well, maybe some of you won't, but this is true. As soon as you see a sign, do not enter. Why can't I enter? What's going on? Keep off the grass. Why do I have to keep off the grass? What's special about it? It provokes something within us, and our rebelliousness is aroused. It also attracts religious legalism. Because what happens when people think it's all about the law and the rules, they start judging other people that they've fallen. But sometimes, sadly, it attracts condemnation. So if you live under the law, you will live condemned because you're failing. You are weak. You won't keep up with the law. The New Testament says the law was like a guardian supervising us until we received our full inheritance through Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? There is only one who has kept the law. There is only one who has fulfilled the law, Jesus Christ. And when he died on the cross, he took the curse of the law upon himself. And I'm not under the curse of the law anymore. Because I live in the righteousness that doesn't come through the law. Paul says, if righteousness came through the law, then it would be satisfactory. We wouldn't need a savior. But we need someone who has fulfilled the law. And we trust in him and his sacrifice. And we gain his righteousness. Hallelujah. That's the gospel. We have an awesome God that we need to be careful about. Because he's awesome. He's not tame. But we also have a God who has provided a way for us to satisfy his holiness. And that's through Jesus Christ. I have died to the law through Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. And I've been raised to a new life. I am under grace. I'm not under law. For me, the law's job is done. It made me aware of sin and it brought me to Christ. But I've enjoyed God's grace. It's like you, if you were a soldier, and you had a sergeant major always barking orders. Don't do this. Do this. Attention. Quick march. Turn around. Do this. And you had to obey or else. And then you're discharged from the army, but you're leaving camp for the last time. And you're walking across the parade ground, and the sergeant major, whose voice you are used to, shouts out, Stop! And you're just ready to obey when you realize you're discharged. (laughs) You don't live under his rule anymore. You now live under the grace of God. And that is available through faith in Jesus Christ. What a great salvation we have. What a great God who still moves towards people who are grumbling and miserable. A God who affirms us. And a God who provides guidelines for us for our good. But the best for us is knowing him through Jesus. And then, just quickly, there's a covenant that is there. God and the people are joined together by sacrificial blood, chapter 24, and God's offering a covenant relation to Israel. Uh, Actually, if you understand covenants, they're the backbone of the Bible. You have Noah's covenant, where he's actually told to, after people have been destroyed, now go on, multiply, care for the world, and the rainbow is there. You have Abraham's covenant. Abraham is told, your children are going to be oh, millions of them, right? Like the, the stars in the sky, and they're going to be a blessing to others. There's a, a covenant to David, and David is told, from your descendants, 
someone will reign on the throne of Israel. And it will be a glorious reign. He's pointing to Jesus. And then there's this covenant, the Mosaic covenant, where the law is given to govern and shape the people of Israel as a special nation. The, it was conditional. There were blessings. There were curses based on obedience and disobedience. And God kept his part of the covenant. Sadly, Israel didn't. And they broke their promises. But God was always faithful. And then we have the new covenant talking about Jesus, which will bring forgiveness of sins, renewed hearts, not just external religion, but a change on the inside. Hallelujah. An intimate knowledge of God because his spirit was in us. And that all happened because Jesus died on the cross. So, as I finish, the New Testament tells us to learn from Israel's exodus and their journey to the promised land. It says learn from them. There's lots of warnings there. And when people cover this story of the Exodus, films, stage productions, they're fascinated by the Exodus story, aren't they? You see it. I went to see the Prince of Egypt. If you, I think it was just when COVID was starting. Uh, and uh, we just managed, I think, a few years ago. I went with Guy Miller and Heather Miller. Pam and I went. And we watched is it The Prince of Egypt. It was a great show. They're fascinated with the story of Exodus. It's been on all sorts of films. But they miss the main message. And the main message is this. God is great. And God is loving. And God delivers. I want you to know that you're valued by God. You are a treasured possession. That says more about his grace than your merits. But it's still true. God loves you. He cares for you. He's willing to protect you like these people provide for you. He can rescue if you stumble, if you grumble. He can restore you. And God offers you a fresh relationship through this new covenant. Have faith in Jesus. Don't trust your works. Have faith in Jesus for salvation. The gospel is not, here are some rules to keep, right? The gospel is this, look at Jesus and see what God has done and provided through him and put your trust in him. That's the gospel. Let's meet with God. Let's enjoy his presence and let's love this loving, covenant-keeping God with all that we have and let's love our neighbours as we love ourselves. That's the message. God bless you as you go on from here. Thanks for listening. We meet on Sundays at 10am at the Royal Grammar School in Guildford. We look forward to seeing you.